0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Change in the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. Hello, everyone, and we are back with another episode of Changing the Climate. Happy New Year to all, and welcome to season two. We are expecting 50 episodes this year, is the plan, and usually I try to follow my plans. But for now, I am very lucky to welcome my guest, Alexandra Schluntz. Alexandra is an associate attorney with Earth Justice Rocky Mountain office in Denver, Colorado. Earth Justice is a nonprofit environmental law organization with various goals, including protecting people's health, preserving wildlife, advancing clean energy, and of course, combating climate change. So Alexandra, thank you so much for being here me- with me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's truly an absolute pleasure. I always love to get started by just getting some background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing today.
1: Sure. Um, yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm an associate attorney and environmental lawyer took a little bit of an indirect route to this career path. I think I've always been interested in the environment. I grew up in the desert Southwest in Albuquerque and Prescott, Arizona. So conservation was sort of always top of mind as a kid, especially around water conservation and you know, just the beautiful outdoors here. Uh, so habitat protection. And then, you know, as a, you know, in school, I was learning more about climate change and these impacts and uh, just became really interested in the environment but I did, when I went to college, I studied um, optical engineering and I thought I was gonna be an engineer. I was interested maybe in working on solar panels and thought that could be a good way to tackle kind of climate change. And just as that went on, I I really enjoyed my classes, but I kind of, I realized I was thinking more and more in terms of uh, what are the barriers to adopting solar panels, for instance, or what are the barriers to tackling climate change that are kind of broader, more systemic, I was a little less interested in the technology and a little more interested in people. What are the impacts on our communities and how how can we solve these problems on, on a high level? And so that led me down the path to law school. Uh, I took one year to do a master's degree in Latin American studies. I was interested in international law and environmental law for a bit. And I, I ended up kind of going back towards a focus on uh, local Locally driven, you know, regionally centered, community driven activism rather than sort of the international side of things. Uh, And so, so I went to law school, and when I graduated, I spent one year as a fellow with the Conservation Law Foundation. That was a just great experience, wonderful organization. They work primarily in New England, and then I did one year working for a judge. And then once that job wrapped up, I was really, you know, really fortunate to land with Earth Justice as an associate attorney in the Denver office. Right now, I'm talking to you from Albuquerque, where I'm staying with family cool. until our Denver office reopens, hopefully soon, one day when it's safe.
0: Fair enough. What is optical engineering? Is that like eye, eyes optics?
1: Great question. No, and we actually—I remember—we thought about having T-shirts <laughs> made uh, in college that said, "We're not eye doctors. I don't know very much about eyes."
0: <laughs> yeah, okay, but okay. It's
1: it's it's weirdly niche, but also really broad. It has has just anything to do with light. So that's why solar panels you know, fit into that bucket. Telescopes also fit into that bucket. Uh, it's just a really broad range. Um, I have friends who work on satellites and lasers and different things, but
0: <laughs> Very interesting. So it sounds to me like you're a big picture person, what it sounds like you were interested in like international affairs and stuff like that. So um, if the reason you got into law is so you could have like large scale impact, I suppose is the idea?
1: Yeah, definitely. That's a great summary.
0: Cool. Well, that's very interesting. uh, Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way and only I'm trying to do it through like a business oriented lens. But I think the only reason for that is because that's what my my background is. But yeah, so getting more on like the the international affairs just for a second. I'm just curious what you learned. So you said you got a master's degree and it was from Oxford, right? Mm -hmm. So what inspired you to study Latin American studies in particular?
1: Sure. So a couple of things. I, I studied Spanish also in undergraduate. Um, I was planning to be an engineer, but I just think that's such a useful skill. It's a beautiful language. I live in the Southwest. Uh, so that was important to me. And uh, when I decided I didn't want to be an engineer, I said, well, what other skills do I have? Spanish is one of them. Cool. Latin American studies I was really interested in. And uh, it was a great experience. I learned so much because it, that was my first exposure really to social sciences. I'm studying engineering and studying Spanish, which is a humanities program didn't have the same social sciences background and that built a great um, base level understanding for law and policy and kind of like you said those big impacts um, society shifts so just different analytical skills that I built up there and so that's on the skill side and on the substance uh, as I mentioned at the time I was thinking maybe I could go into international law international environmental law and um, the program was great and you know maybe one day I'd love to apply my Latin American studies again but I sort yeah. of as I mentioned, turned a little bit away from international law and more, yeah, kind of, kind of the opposite towards the ground up community-based advocacy, as opposed to kind of the top-down uh, international treaties sort of law. And the, bo- both are really important. So there's, there's nothing wrong with, with the other. I just found myself drawn to kind of the community-rooted advocacy.
0: Is that because you're, you find yourself to be more of like a people person or rather than, I don't even know what we would compare it to. Like someone who argues all the time, but yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons why I like doing what I'm doing, which is residential people. We're talking about me getting into commercial real estate, but just the idea of like, just dealing with like the businesses versus dealing with like the people. It's so much com- more compelling to talk to human beings on an interpersonal level like this. Um, well, we well, really cool. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, so stupid question. What is the difference between a lawyer and a politician? Because don't they just make both make laws? Isn't that what their, their job is?
1: Yeah, not a stupid question at all. Um, and a lot of lawyers become politicians. And so right. there's some overlap there, but the different role. So it, it kind of comes down to the, our constitutional separation of powers is we have uh, the legislature, uh, which passes laws. We have the executive branch, which uh, administers the laws. And then we have the judicial branch, which... Um, you know, applies, er, sort of enforces the law, enforces the constitution. Uh, the judicial branch, and so, so what lawyers do is primarily work you know, in that judicial system. We sure. do work with the other branches as well, but you know, our, our role is earth justice when we're litigating. Uh, we're in court in the judicial branch, and so, that role, uh, it's it's separate from the lawmaking role of politicians because the courts. They're, their decisions will have an impact on the law certainly, but they're not out there writing laws. And they, they try to stay out of those policy discussions to the extent possible, but they're making sure that the laws that get passed comply with the constitution or comply with you know, other laws that get passed you know, state laws have to comply with federal and it's kind of lots, of lots of pieces there, but that's Always. sort of the difference.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of like an enforcer versus like a constructor kind of thing. Yeah. Very cool. So then what's a lobbyist?
1: So a lobbyist would be someone who uh, works to convince the the legislative branch, so Congress, uh, Mm -hmm. or sometimes also the administrative branch. They they work to um, explain their positions and explain kind of what laws they would like to see constructed, how they would like to see them implemented. And there are a lot of, there are rules around lobbying um, that that make it uh, more transparent. it's an important. It gets a bad rap, and it can be <laughs> influence. You know, yeah. it needs to be more transparent, really. But there, there is an important role to play here. For in, instance, like environmental groups, you mm-hmm. know, we can go and explain to Congress, like this is why it's really important that we get a new law. Or, this is why you know these pieces are important. And typically, especially at the state level, so at the federal level, you have a limited staff, and so you you are looking for other people to bring in ideas. You're looking for community groups to explain their issues uh so that the big the big problem with lobbying is around transparency and you know money kind of who has the power to have that access that's where it comes down
0: to is big. it about like power of voice like as in who is the loudest or who's the most effective because if you have a lot of money like we saw bloomberg like boom into the race and use all his money to try and get his word out um it's just it's very confusing to me so i'll tell you a little background um In 2016, so I was probably 18 years old. I had no interest in politics at all. I was a young guy. And Bernie Sanders came to do a rally at CU. And I was listening to him, you know, 99% and all that stuff. And one of the things that I was most drawn to was this idea of taking money out of politics. But then I had a professor, Alistair Norcross, who was obviously very influential on me. Maybe I should have him on the show at some point. He told me about this Citizens United case would you were you able to explain like what happened in that specific case and how it changed the course of american politics
1: sure i'll do my best i will say this isn't fully no my area of expertise yeah. but sorry I can give you... no no it's it's a great question it is really important so citizens united kind of uh, lowered the veil on the money that's going into these lobbying groups so there are various federal laws that say you know, if, if you're going to be, uh, donating money to campaigns or campaigning on behalf of a politician to get elected uh, that, that that needs to be transparent and it needs to be public information. And so Citizens United was all about where's the barrier there. And it essentially it, it created a lot more room uh, for private groups and private individuals to contribute a lot of money to political campaigns. And to do so without revealing their identities as well. So it's both the volume of money and also the transparency issue. I I believe Citizens United covered all that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Those are generally the issues. Again, don't, uh, not not an expert on election law.
0: No worries. I'm sorry. I just, you're like one of the only lawyers I have a chance to speak with. But yeah. So I also hear, I hear that like lobbyists Write our laws, and then like politicians put it in, into law. Um, am I misguided in that sense? Like the lobbyists are the ones who are actually like writing laws, and then giving it to politicians, and then politicians are like championing them. I just I'm just trying to understand the world we're in, and I started with how do we fix climate change, and it's evolved into oh my god, I have to try and figure out how the world works, which is like really complicated. <laughs>
1: yeah, definitely, it is very complicated. Uh, so I'll give you the typical lawyer answer: It depends. Uh, <laughs> but that, that can happen sometimes, um, again, when I was talking about sometimes limited staff and resources, it, you can imagine sometimes a staff member, someone working for a member of Congress, it might be handier to actually have text on a page that you receive from someone that says "This is what we'd like to see as a law." And you mm-hmm. might t- take that as a starting point, At the very least it clarifies you know what the group is asking for.'t uh, I don't think it always happens that way. They don't necessarily always write the language themselves. and it, I would say, probably virtually never does it stay the same. Uh, there's sure. just, it goes through so many drafting, both you know, in the office and then through various iterations when the House and the Senate have to compromise and all of this, so, uh, but there is some truth to that, that yeah, lobbyists might, might be drafting up language. Uh, and I'm, I haven't been really deeply involved on that from, from the government or from a lobbyist side, so I couldn't speak to more of the details of how frequently that happens versus not or how, what it looks like, but vaguely it depends.
0: No worries. All right, so we'll, we'll get into the, your, what your expertise is. So I, I'm curious, what role does the law have to play in this fight against climate change, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, yeah, great question. It's a really critical tool. It's only one tool in our toolbox, to be sure. I think it's important that we recognize all the different um, ways that we need to tackle this monumental problem. Uh, but law, well, to give you an idea, I'll talk about some of Earth Justice's work. Um,
0: Beautiful.
1: Actually, if, if you want, I'll back up really quickly. Please explain do. a little more what earth justice is. Absolutely. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, we're a nonprofit environmental law organization. We founded in 1971 and we focus on this kind of high impact litigation. That's going to have broad impacts for tackling pollution, uh, improving health outcomes uh, and tackling climate change. So we have uh, a lot of work to do. And as a result, we have, you know, a pretty big organization. We have over 150 attorneys across 14 offices, We have at any given time over 650 active cases going. And I'll also note that our effectiveness uh, really depends on kind of a strong and diverse partnership model. Uh, So we represent over 500 groups, client groups every year. And this is a variety of clients ranging from national organizations to small grassroots groups. And that's just a a critical part of our work that we're representing uh, the voices of other groups and making sure to work uh, with communities to get done what needs to get done. And a big part of that also is that all of our representation is done for free. So we rely on donations to function. We don't charge our clients. Yeah. So I know it's pretty amazing. Uh, And it's just, it's really critical because that means that instead of our clients, you know, having to pick clients based on who can pay, we can assist client groups, you know, based on our ability, you know, our our expertise uh, and our likelihood of having a big impact and just helping these groups rather than just, you know, whether people can pay. So that's, that's a big part of our model. And, and we're really proud to be doing that work.
0: That's Um, incredible. Yeah. So, so how, how is everyone compensated for their work then? So we
1: are funded by donations by um, both by individuals and from, you know, grants and foundations. And uh, so we, you know, As attorneys and and the rest of our staff, we are all compensated, uh, Mm -hmm. but it just doesn't come from our clients. Occasionally, clients might help pay for expert witnesses or fees, but that just depends on kind of their ability to pay.
0: So what does your your day-to-day work look like as far as you said, 650 different cases typically at a time. And these are all, these are proposed by other organizations that are focused on the issues that we both are focused on, obviously.
1: Yeah, we work with the clients to identify. You know, we can't take on every case, uh, but and we but we work with clients to determine what cases make sense to, to tackle. Uh, so on a day to day, it really varies, and, and I'm kind of new at Earth Justice, also, so I can't speak to other attorneys' works. Work uh, for me, I've had I've started on several cases. Some of them are at the the state agency level. So when we um, now I'm getting a little wonky. We might want to zoom out, but I guess on a day-to-day, <laughs> on a day-to-day basis, you know, lots of research, writing, emails, phone calls, lots of um, you know meetings with whether it's with clients or partners or sometimes opposition if we're trying to reach agreement or settlement on something, and so it's it's fairly fast-paced. Um, I think one nice thing about working for a nonprofit. Uh, as opposed to the private practice is we do have better quality of life, fewer overall hours, but that doesn't mean that we're immune to late nights and busy weekends because there's a lot of work to be done and there are hard deadlines sometimes. And (laughs) so, yeah.
0: Interesting. How do we incentivize other legal professionals to do kind of work like this? It's, it, when I think of a lawyer, I think of someone who is working like 80 hours a week and is, is trying. I, I think of a, I guess there's a lot of different lawyers. My uncle's an environmental lawyer as well. But I think of someone like a criminal defense lawyer who's trying to defend the criminal no matter what. And that's, I think that's what most people think of. I think of like, have you seen the movie Liar, Liar? Jim yes, Perry. Oh,
1: a long time ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's an old nineties movie. It's a classic, but yeah, you think of like the person who's t- trying to defend someone for pay. And I just, I, I, won't, I don't want to say I'm skeptical, but it's like when you're up against this force that has a lot of money behind it versus this force that is just funded by donations, how do you compete against those guys?
1: Yeah. Great question. Um, with a lot of grit, a lot of endurance. With heart. <laughs> I think uh, you know, a lot of these cases take years and years and years. So it really speaks to the perseverance of our attorneys and also to the perseverance of our clients who are you know, often the people who are facing the negative impacts every day. Uh, it just takes time sometimes, some of these cases. And uh, But yeah, we have you know, some great legal minds, wonderful staff uh, who are really dedicated and passionate about this. And so I think that that goes a long way as
0: well. Very interesting. So what, then all right so continuing on this idea of like the money controlling things why do you think the legal system is just in my opinion as a young 23 year old guy who's just starting to figure out how the world works why have we we failed so far it's not like we've given up but why has the legal system failed to take the action that we truly need on issues like this because every day we are not doing something we have more to clean up quite literally
1: yeah absolutely um yeah, well, there's there's a lot there. I think maybe I can start with um, where we're succeeding or starting to succeed, and then we can look at kind of where the bigger gaps are. So, and this goes back to your original question of just how how does law t- tie into climate change? Yeah. So, for Earth Justice's climate work, uh, one big piece of it is working on clean energy. So, just as quickly as possible, transitioning from fossil fuels to clean energy. And in this area, we've had a good amount of success. I mean. We still need to go even more quickly, but this has been where a lot of environmental groups have been able to go to court uh, under the law called the Clean Air Act, that's a federal law. Mm-hmm. There are kind of legal hooks that have allowed us to go into court and force power plants to either clean up or shut down. And so that work combined with the just the economics of renewable energy becoming cheaper and cheaper. you know, Today in Colorado, renewables are cheaper than fossil fuel power. And so those two things combined has put us on this shift There's still work to be done, absolutely, in the clean energy realm, but we're at least in the right direction. Just need to keep speeding up. And then, but meanwhile, you see uh, in Colorado, the transportation sector has recently overtaken the energy sector as the biggest polluter. And transportation sector, we're working on those issues as well. It's a little bit tougher. There are fewer kind of legal hooks. To, to go to court, so that's kind of where we get more into policy and where it comes down to the legislators to pass better laws. But there are still some, you know, some action we can take trying to get quicker adoption of electric vehicles. Uh, this ties into, again, some of it. The one of the stronger legal hooks goes back to the Clean Air Act. Uh, this was passed in the 1970s. And it gave the federal government a lot of power over air emissions. Uh, There was a compromise made at the time. California at the time had a lot of air pollution from cars, having really bad impacts on the air quality of the state. And automakers wanted to just have one national standard for for clean cars, because that that makes it easier. Uh, You you can see for business reasons why it's better to have one standard to comply with than a bunch of different ones. They wanted a national standard, but California had this big issue. So there was a compromise that allowed California to go further than the federal government if they wanted.
0: Classic California.
1: So, yeah, <laughs> so that's what California did. They passed a clean um, you know, zero, uh, excuse me, zero emissions vehicles uh, rules. And those also, a big part of it is that other states are allowed to adopt the California rules if they want. So like Colorado can't come up with its own rules, but it can adopt California's if it wants. True. And in fact, that's what it did in 2019. Huh. And, We've seen some interplay with the federal level, the Trump administration you might have seen some headlines where the Trump administration was kind of trying to limit California's power under the Clean Air Act to do these clean car rules. Uh, But at any rate, that's that's still going forward. And California recently passed, I believe, another rule relating to heavy duty uh, zero emission vehicles. And Colorado right now is considering whether to adopt those. Uh, So hopefully they go ahead with that and we can keep moving forward on transportation. Just to kind of give you a view of the legal opportunities are different depending on the issue. We have sort of more um, more legal hooks in the clean energy sector than in transportation. Uh, and there are other big issues coming up as well. The building sector is a big source of emissions. So building just being you know, your house, it results. It takes energy to run, and uh, one big area is beneficial electrification. So that would mean getting your furnace or your uh, your water heater instead of to run on natural gas to have those run on electricity. And when adopted on a wide scale, it can have a really big impact. So those are kind of, those are a few different pieces. Uh, there's a yeah. lot going on.
0: Um, yeah. Very interesting. So, so these, these clients that you have that you're working for with these organizations, is it usually like a bunch of different organizations or businesses or people all get together and say hey earth justice we need your help we need you to do this case and it's not it's not necessarily going to be very profitable but it it's for the the good of the people i'm trying to figure out how exactly the the organization works how do you choose which cases you're going to take on
1: yeah great question uh, so again it depends uh, it happens <laughs> in different answer. ways <laughs> uh, it's such a good joke. And then you go to law school and you're like, Oh, I see. It really does depend. (laughs) So
0: such is life. Um,
1: yeah, so it happens in different ways. So sometimes, yeah, sometimes it might be a group that we've never worked with, you know, comes forward and has a case, uh, you know, that, that can happen. Other times it's, you know, we try to develop long lasting partnerships with various groups, whether they're national groups or grassroots groups and those develop over time. And it, it means it can be kind of a two-way flow of they might say, well, this is a really big issue. Like how, how can we tackle it? Earth justice, you're the lawyers. Like what, what are our options here? Or it might be that we see, sometimes there are just things that are pretty obvious that we know is important to get involved in. And we might see if other environmental groups are already getting involved in, but if not, we'll go back to our partners and discuss, like, is this something that you want to you know, be a client in? Is this important to, to your community? So for instance, in Colorado, we passed this landmark uh, the state passed this landmark legislation in 2019. We can talk about that if you like, but there's just lots of work to be done as a result. And so we know mm-hmm. that in some capacity, that's really important to engage with. And so we talk to our partners about where we want to weigh in and how we want to approach that. So it's, it is, yeah, world, it is a kind of partnership model.
0: What was this legislation that was passed in 2019?
1: Yeah. So it did a lot of different things, but it's, it's really big news for Colorado. So w- one part of it is that uh, Colorado put uh, greenhouse gas goals with limits uh moving forward so in 2025 we're supposed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 26% compared to the 2005 levels in the state by and when? by 20 sorry
0: sorry by by what year are we supposed to limit by 26% 26% by
1: 2025
0: cool okay and
1: then 50% by 2030 and then 90% by 2050
0: interesting
1: yeah, so there's, these are you know, big goals, but we need to make sure that, that it actually happens. Uh, there, there's another important piece also I want to talk about that legislation. It finally it, it explicitly acknowledged the environmental racism that we know happens where low-income and minority communities and working-class communities and rural communities, that they face much larger impacts from pollution and from climate change. And they're have this disproportionate burden. So the legislation recognized that and required the state to take meaningful action to engage with these communities and to reduce those burdens. So that that's an important part of moving forward as we figure out how are we actually gonna meet these goals. That's a critical part of it. Um, so, so this is, clearly this is a big piece of legislation and we knew that, that we wanted to be involved in some way and make sure that these goals are actually met.
0: Fair enough. So how do you think we can get businesses to work with these laws? Because now we have th- these goals of 26% by this amount, 50% by then, 90% by 2050. How do you talk to like the power, like the coal plant or the oil production company that's in Colorado and be like, hey, you guys need to stop doing what you're doing or be like, hey, you're emitting X amount of CO2 a year like how do we work with them so like they are incentivized as well to, to want to follow these goals and be profitable?
1: Yeah, it's such a critical part. And, and we certainly need, um, <clears throat> need business and industry to be on board and to be engaged in these conversations to make sure we're moving as quickly as possible in a way that makes sense. So the way that that legislation is getting implemented is largely through state agency rulemakings this is where we're getting a little wonky. <laughs> yeah. So there are a number of state agencies. They have their federal analogs. Um, but at the state, we have the Public Utility Commission that regulates utilities. And then we have the Air Quality Control Commission. And so they look at a variety of air quality issues. And they're responsible for translating the that 2019 legislation into actual rules and, and making sure that we're going to get to those goals. So... And then we start getting wonkier from there it's just lots yeah. of different specific issues and that's where in those processes, both environmental groups and community groups and industry groups are involved and um, the, the agency can propose a rule, and then different groups can propose other rules or we can weigh in on what they've proposed and it's sort of it's a whole process and you know the ideal is to have everyone engaged and to be working towards something that we know will um, actually meet these goals. So for instance, we have a big rulemaking coming up next year to meet this. It's called the Colorado Roadmap has these goals, right? So to meet this roadmap goal. Yeah. Um, So this rulemaking next year, we're going to be, we think it's really important to have some kind of emissions or production limit on the oil and gas sector just to make sure that it's enforceable, that that we're actually going to meet these goals. We've seen in other locations that sometimes you can pass goals, but What's, what's in place to make sure that we meet them. So we think that's going to be an important tool. And then that rulemaking, will also be talking about specific strategies um, to, to reduce pollution. Uh, one area we're working on right now, getting even more wonky, uh, <laughs> that is around um, oil and gas production. So you have oil and gas wells, as they draw um, liquids out of the ground, they have different devices that they're called pneumatic devices. They actuate, mm-hmm. they release pollution into the air it's just as, as part of the functioning. Uh, but there are newer technologies that reduce those emissions and even eliminate them completely. They're called zero-emitting controlling devices. So right now we're working, um, we're, we're before the commission, we're discussing different options to you know, require companies to start replacing their old equipment with this new the new pneumatic devices that would really substantially reduce methane, which is a huge greenhouse gas uh, pollutant. It also contributes to ozone, which you, know, you might see those alerts over the summer, um, that, the health pollution alerts. That if you yeah, ozone, I can taste it. That's yeah. It's gross. Yeah, it's awful. So <laughs> yeah. that's, it's all kind of tied together. Um, that's one of the specific ways, but there's a lot you know, where the rubber meets the road of the details that need to get worked out. And so there's a lot of work to be done there.
0: Yeah. And, and the problem with that is that everyone, most people kind of have the same like goals and vision. Everyone wants to live a happy, healthy, successful life, but everyone has a different opinion about how to get there. And that's when you say things go wonky because then we're giving people the opportunity to kind of figure out, okay, like hammer out, like you think we should do this, you think do that. What, what happens if in 2025 where you're at 24% decrease, or what if we increase our emissions? Is there anything that's like, Hey, like, we have to do this or else so, so, and so, and I'm going to guess, probably not.
1: Yeah, I think I mean. probably not, uh, but, you know, hopefully we can get in this rulemaking next year. That's what we, when I mentioned backstops or kind of, when is that? Like limits. Sorry, what did I say? I, so next year we're having a rulemaking uh, before it's just one of many, but rules to, to try to implement this roadmap. Uh, and we think that backstops are a big part of that to make sure that if we don't meet the limits, that there are consequences that get us back on track. Uh, but right now, as of right now, there's nothing that, you know, nothing would necessarily happen in 2025 if we haven't met the goals.
0: Huh. So in your mind, how, how can we cre- create some kind of backstop that would, would allow us to be sure that we're going to be at least on the path? I mean, 2050, so it's 2020 now, we have 30 years we're, we're going to be dealing with the emissions we're doing today in 30 years. How can we create something that just, I just want some sort of guarantee that we're going to be fine. Because right now with the fires and the smoke and the rising temperature, I'm very concerned and I don't think we're doing enough.
1: Yeah, absolutely. we can see the huge impacts already and it's, um, it's deadly and it's only going to get worse. So there's a few parts to coming up with a solid backstop my colleagues are working on this. So I'm sure they have more details, but I have a little bit of a higher level, but one part is getting a really robust inventory tool. It's kind of hard to count emissions sometimes. So making sure that we have good tools and that we're measuring things as, as accurately as possible so that we know both how much emissions we have, how many are projected from the changes that we expect to happen over the next couple of years, and that sort of thing. Is so you, you can't meet these goals if we don't know what we're working with. And then The next part would be to have enforceable emissions limits that kick in. So if if we don't meet those goals, uh, there are different ways this could take place. It could be a limit on emissions that once we reach this limit, then things we start shutting down, oil and gas productions or scaling back or something like that. Or you could have a production limit to start with to say this is the maximum amount that we can draw out of the ground this year and still stay on track to meet our goals. it gets, again, the details uh, are still being worked out and, and this of isn't course. Uh, fully my, my area of expertise, but those are some of the options available to us.
0: No worries. Okay, so let's talk about something that you have done a bit of study about, which is food localization. Am I right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. I'd love, so what is food localization?
1: Yeah, great question. So food localization is a fancy way of kind of talking about the importance of um, food to local communities. And that includes a kind of a related term would be food sovereignty. So control over your food sources and having, yeah, having both access to healthy food, access to culturally appropriate food if you're an immigrant community or an indigenous community. Um, you know, it's really important to have, you can circle back to that, but so it's both controlling the food system and having access and having that be you know, healthy and, and good for your community. And so th- this is, um, also I'm not working, I'll just disclose, I'm not working so much on food issues right now. I would love to return to them at some point in the future. I, I think as no you know, I worked on them, you know, Conservation Law Foundation, it's an issue I'm really passionate about. Earth justice does do work in the food sector, um, more out of our New York office, and they've been focusing on pesticides and kind of chemicals and uh, making sure that we're protecting the environment and human health uh, in the food sector but as far as the food localization movement it's it's about power over food and health and so we've seen a lot of really amazing grassroots groups doing awesome work of uh, with urban farms with local farms growing organic doing what we call regenerative agriculture which is even further than organic it's rather than just not using chemicals. It's even, it's focusing on the soil and and using agriculture as a way to actually improve the soil and the earth and the ecosystem instead of as an extractive resource.
0: Why is this stuff important as far as climate change goes? I by the way, we did talk about uh, regenerative ag a bit last week on the previous episode. Yeah. I'm very interested in that. And I think, I think I'm starting to lean towards rather than using the word sustainability, I think I would prefer to start using the word regenerative because sustainability is like just keeping the status quo. Whereas regenerative is like, we can keep like rebuilding everything and creating more life, which sounds more interesting to me. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think regenerative just just captures even more than sustainability. and um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so why does, why does where our food come from really matter? How does that impact the planet? You know, if it's an apple grown in California or if it's an apple grown in Peru, like what's the difference?
1: So there are a few big parts to the food system. So one is the agriculture sector is a big source of emissions that is really impacting climate change. It's going to happen. There's a number of reasons for that. One is livestock. That's a big area. Um, the emissions from, Cows burping and farting—it's methane. Yeah, I know. Yeah, (laughs) that's actually—it's a big source. Uh, And then we also see a lot of—you know—if you're clear-cutting forests to make room for agriculture, whether it's livestock or crops, that has a big impact on uh, on emissions and on carbon emissions. Uh, And then there's there's lots of other ways to the transport of of agriculture, for instance. Um, So there's this there are these climate change impacts. Part of that also comes back to the soil, so there are studies that have shown that regenerative agriculture actually puts carbon back in the soil so cool. it 's a tool that can actually combat climate change so it 's both agriculture is contributing to climate change but it can also be part of the solution so when you're when you 're growing in a responsible um, not just sustainable but actually regenerative way, we can draw down carbon out of the atmosphere and it 's still you know this small segment of farmers who are doing this, small but mighty. Uh, and so that's still something that we need to make a lot more progress on. Yeah, uh, But I think it's them. a really exciting area. And then another really important part of agriculture relates to biodiversity. Uh, we see these issues with pesticides, for instance, uh, and with when you're monocropping, so growing a whole lot of one single thing over many, many acres. But that's it's really not great for habitat, right? That has a big impact on, we see it with the bees, uh, but also with birds and other insects, and then it goes up the food chain from there. And so, having you know, regenerative principles that focus on a more balanced habitat uh, can have will have a big impact on this. You know, we're facing a really dire extinction crisis right now.
0: So that's no a, a kidding. Issue. Yeah. Absolutely. What What is the idea of democratizing our food system? What would that What does that mean?
1: So I mean, it again, goes back to power, like a little bit of power to the people and having local power and control over your own food system. Yeah. Um, so one one area actually that Earth Justice works in and that I think is really critical, and I was just learning about a little bit more about last week, is uh, indigenous communities and these tribal, um, you know, the importance of, of uh, the cultural resources. And the local resources for the tribal food sources, so uh, for instance, salmon for for some tribes is both culturally really important and it's obviously important as a food source, but salmon are really under threat from climate change and from dams and from all these environmental impacts uh, and These are issues that sometimes you know a tribe might ha- not have full control over because they don't control the entire river uh, and that's where earth justice can get involved and uh, make sure that Know, environmental laws are being followed and just fighting for more um, again this food more sovereignty for tribes uh, to control their own food sources and to protect and steward their own land uh, I think indigenous uh, communities are they're just they are the best stewards of their own land yeah. they're tied to the land in the way that you know colonists aren't and uh, hmm. it's just you know it, so I think there's both environmental impacts cultural impacts all of this but it kind of all comes back to food localization
0: yeah no i love it no no it does i think it, i think everything with this issue comes back the, the you know the, 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 the lower and lower you bring like the microscope the more and more you see and this is how I'm, I'm happy to end this podcast is the idea of how much impact a single person can have on these issues and people think oh it's climate change it's the whole world it's the whole globe like what can i do it's like having start starting a podcast is what i've done but talking to your friends talking to your family each american has so much power so yeah i mean do you do you agree like i think one person can have a huge impact on the law if you keep if you like fight for what you believe in and you get gain a following and then you hire on um ethical people who work professionally like you do on these issues i think it can change the whole planet really
1: yeah absolutely
0: very cool so how would you recommend the average person get more involved on issues like this
1: there's so many ways, I think, um, you know, as we said, you know, I'm an attorney here, but you know, you're a real estate agent, but you're having a huge impact and you're, you're making this an important part of your life. So I think everyone has opportunities. Whatever your own passion is, if your passion is the environment, then law or something like that, you can go directly for it, but there are ways, and no matter what you're doing, you can contribute to the movement. I think there's a few different pieces. So part of we've been talking a lot about grassroots organizations and representing their own communities. A lot of groups like that, you can get involved in your own community uh, and look for groups like that to get involved in uh, and that might, you know, as a result, you might go you know, speak truth to power and talk to the government and talk at these, these rulemaking hearings that we've been discussing, you can actually talk about the impacts that your community is facing and we've seen more and more of that in Colorado and it's had a huge impact, I think, to actually have people who are making the rules hear from the people who are most impacted. Uh, you know, in your day-to-day life, you can try to live as sustainably as possible. I think that's great. I think you know we all should. I'm still trying to adopt more sustainable practices, but we I also can. think that huh?
0: we always can. You can always try we always better. You know, can.
1: And that's important. But I also I don't. I think it's it's these systemic changes that we as individuals can help force. That that is that is um, where we should put a lot of our energy because there there are some systems where recycling is great. And I hope that we all recycle, but that's not going to solve the climate crisis alone. And so there's a lot more that needs to be done at the system level, rather than putting kind of individual shame on, like, oh, well, you, you put that in the wrong bin.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So it sounds like this, not only is this legal process very complicated, but it's very, very slow. And I think it, it sounds like it takes years to work on a specific issue and get groundbreaking. like you said, the 2019 legislation was groundbreaking. Where do you see us in five years? Because if it sounds like the, the issues we're working on now will be done in five years, which means we'll have to come up with more issues to work on five years down the road. I'm just curious where you see this whole thing going based on yeah. all the information you have.
1: Yeah. And, it, you know, I'm not sure all the issues we're working on now will be done in five years, but at least we'll have you know, hopefully made a lot of progress Certainly seeing a lot of change in the next five years between electric cars is a big one where battery prices are coming down really rapidly. And by 2025, they should be cheaper than uh, most electric cars should be cheaper than their gas counterparts. So that's huge. That's a big shift. We've already talked about energy. We've seen a big shift. There'll be more work to do on those issues, but we're going to have to start moving towards, like I said, the building sector, other areas where we need to get creative um, and, and make sure that we have Good opportunities ready to to keep fighting. So not sure exactly what issue will be, you know, at hand in 2025. I'm sure people smarter than me probably have a better idea, but it's kind of an all hands on deck situation. Uh, Just need to keep working and try to get there as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah, and we will. And I really appreciate you coming on this week. I know we were kind of all over the place, which is probably not what you're used to. I'm just, I'm on this journey to kind of learn as much as I can. And I hope the listeners got some value from it today because there's just, as everyone can tell, there's like a million different pieces and just kind of being educated seems to be the first step. So Alexandra, I really appreciate you coming on today.
1: Thanks for having me, Ethan.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. All right, everyone, take it easy. Thanks so much for listening to... Changing the Climate, a podcast hosted by Climate Change Realty, the most innovative real estate corporation ever conceptualized. Visit CCRBoulder.com today.